Today we are going to uh, deal with the last chapter of this introductory material in the book of Genesis, that is chapter 11. Next, well, even I'm, we may even get into chapter 12 today, but chapter 12 is a very significant break in what's going on in Genesis because now the focus is no longer on the human race in general. The focus is on one person, Abraham. But chapter 11 is, a like I believe all of the chapters, in the first 11 chapters, is a very important chapter in uh, answering a couple of questions. It's like all these introductory chapters. It helps us to understand what's going on in the rest of the Bible. I said this, I think, three or four times. I'll say it one more time, and then probably won't repeat it. You really cannot understand the remaining 65 books of the Bible, Exodus through Revelation, if you don't understand what happens in the first 11 chapters. They are that foundational to what God is doing. So that's why I spent a lot of time. We've been in this material quite a few weeks, but that's because I think it's so important. Chapter 11 um, helps to establish several very important facts. Fact number one is that the human race is really all descended from one family. Now, that may or may not be an astonishing fact to you. That is an astonishing fact for the typical macrobiologist who would not agree with that. But the Bible makes it clear that all of humanity is descended from one family, Noah's family. Number two, the human race is hopelessly divided. It is not a unified family, unified race. It is hopelessly divided. Language, ethnic and racial differences, territory, land. I mean, it is hopefully divided. This chapter explains why. Number three, in one sense, all all of the human race, (coughs) excuse me, all of the human race, in one way or another, is related to what God is doing, either in terms of creation or blessing. Um, God is recreating his world because of you and I live on this side of the cross through his son, and therefore is offering blessing to the entire human race. And that's an important thing that comes also from this particular chapter. Number four This is a very important geographical point. All of the material in chapter 10 and chapter 11 is arranged around this understanding. Israel is at the center. Israel, you know, Israel, Palestine is is at the the center. center. Geographically, everything is related to Israel. How does it relate to geographically? And so as the people of Israel would read this book, they would see everything that is laid out here is in relation to them because, and and this is just a fact of the scriptures, God chooses a people through which he will bless the rest of the human race. That is the Jewish people. And through them, that's what God will see that next chapter, chapter 11. God says to Abraham, through you, all people will be blessed. And so that creation blessing theme is developed through Abraham. But that's that's just an important, a very important fact geographically, the way this material is presented in the book, uh, or in the chapter of, of, of five. Is that Shem? <coughs> Israel with children of Shem? That's correct. The, uh, the ethnic group of Israel will come through through Shem. That's correct. Number five. And finally, this is, this is a conclusion that you will reach. <laughs> no nation, no political power group can bring hope to the human race. Only the Lord God will bring hope to the human race. Because all of these divisions, which chapter 11 helps us to understand, where humanity is hopelessly divided, 
recorded human history, which is about 5,500 years of recorded human history, is a history of one nation or one clan or one ethnic group trying to establish control over others. And they never succeed in bringing hope, <coughs> peace, order, stability. What you and I witnessed in 2016 is what humanity has witnessed for 5,500 years of recorded history. One nation, one group, one clan, one ethnic group, one racial group, whatever, however you want to characterize the division, will try to use power and try to bring in order and hope and peace and stability according to what they want to do. It never works. But the Bible makes it clear, what the Bible makes clear is that it is only the Lord God <coughs> that will bring this peace and this stability and this order. And it will be through his son. Chapter 11 helps us to understand why things are in such a mess. <coughs> the rest of the Bible will explain to us how God's going to undo this mess. All right? This may be a rough hour. Would so you like some water? Glass I water? have coffee. I have a lot. I'll be all right. Water? If you are willing to tolerate this, that is me hacking and coughing, and <clears throat> if, you, if it really bothers you, feel, feel free to leave. I will not be offended. I'll never speak to you again, but no. no I mean, I will not be offended at all. So I, I just can't help it. I got this thing hit me Sunday, and oh, my goodness, it's, it's the worst cold I've had in a long time. Not that that matters, but I just thought I'd tell you that. All right, you ready? Let's we'll start chapter 11. Any questions about those introductory comments? <clears throat> I'm sorry. Oh, number uh, three. That all, all nations, you know, regardless of all the divisions that we mentioned, number two, all, all, all these different divisions are related in one way or another to the creation blessing theme of Scripture. Thank you. I assume that's for me. That's what? That's for you. Okay. I, I, I thought maybe you got it for yourself. And that will be through his son, through what you know, the Bible makes clear is the Lord Jesus. All right, let's begin chapter 11 then. And we read in, in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That's an important fact as you start this. There were no divisions in terms of the descendants of Noah's family, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. There are divisions, family divisions, three sons and, and their descendants. But the divisions that you and I are familiar with, language divisions and cultural divisions, and the kinds of things that develop in with ethnic and racial complexity, did not exist. Verse 2, as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. <clears throat> if you look on the map that is in your note packet from last, um, <clears throat> I think it was last week, Page 12. Yeah, page 12. Yeah. Which documents the, <clears throat> excuse me, which documents the uh, uh, outflowing of the three children. Of, if you find Shem, which is over here, what today be, and you just let your eye go immediately north or right above it, you can see Shinar. See that? Yeah. Okay. Not uh, two people said yes, so I'm assuming the rest of you, even though you didn't verbalize it, see it. I just, I just want you to know, we know exactly where this is. There isn't a mystery to this. This is today what you and I would call the very southern end of Iraq and very northern edge of Kuwait. It's right in that area where the Tigris and Euphrates River valleys begin to meet. It is a plain. You know what a plain is. I'm not calling it a flies, P-L-A-I-N. It's uh, very flat. It's a, it, today it's a desert. 
but it's a very, very flat area. Okay, now that's important just geographically. They move from the east, Ararat and up there would be kind of in modern-day Turkey, so they moved down into the east, to Shinar. And they settled there. <clears throat> Should they have done that? What was God's command? Multiply and fill the earth. That's not, they don't want to do that. They're disobeying. They don't want to do that. They don't want to spread out. Verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. <coughs> and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Bitumen <coughs> is petroleum, which gives you an indication why, you know, today there's a lot of oil there. So there was a lot of oil back there, too. But the point is, these become building materials <coughs> for a formidable structure that they want to build. This isn't going to be made of sand. This is a structure that has well thought through planning and formidable materials for this part of the world. Verse 4, they came, said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens. Let us make, <coughs> this is a very, very, very important phrase. Let us make a name for ourselves. That phrase, let us make a name for ourselves, is a declaration of independence from God. They are not interested in doing what God wants them to do. They are going to build a tower. They are going, this is all language of something permanent. Now I'll talk about what that tower is in just a second. <coughs> but instead of doing what God wants them to do, they are exhibiting an ambition, a fear, and an arrogance. I love the Greek word hubris, defying God. Let us make a name for ourselves is a declaration of independence from God. It's a de declaration of self-sufficiency. It's a declaration of autonomy from God. We do not want to do what he wants us to do. So we're not going to do it. Now, in your um, packet on page 15, is a, it's a drawing, it's an illustration of what this tower may have looked like. The reason we say that is because number, a number of these have been found in what is ancient Babylonia or what would be today southern Iraq. They're called ziggurats. And they became great worship centers for the ancient and very early Babylonian Empire under Hammurabi and others, and then for the Neo-Babylonian Empire. We know, we know what these towers look like. And so there's no reason to assume, well, let me put it another way. There is therefore some reason to assume that the tower may have looked like this. Because although this is, the, this is very early in human history, the point is that we have some examples of what this tower may have looked like. And again, I, I see no reason why it would not perhaps have looked like this. But the importance is not the tower and what it looked like and its architecture and its structure. The importance is why they're doing it. And one more time, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, you put those two phrases together, name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. They're defying God. They don't want to do what God wants them to do. This is arrogance. This is defiance. Or again, that word, this is hubris. So what does God do? The language of verse 5 is almost hilarious. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. 
The humor of this is they aren't even close to God. When they want to build a tower to that, they aren't even close. God has to intentionally, I mean, this is the language of satire, of, of humorous rebuke. They aren't even close to God. He has to intentionally come down and take a look at what they've done. There's humor in that. I don't know if you're catching it. But it's biting humor. They aren't even close to him. So he comes down and takes a look and sees what they've done. Verse 6. The Lord said, Behold, they are all one people. They all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. They are uniting together as the descendants of Noah, defying God. Now just put this in the context of everything we have been studying in the first 11 chapters. In a very real sense, God is saying, here we go again. Just like Adam and Eve in chapter 3, just like the descendants of Cain in chapters 4 and 5, and just like the descendant of Noah under Canaan when they see him in his drunken nakedness. God is saying, here we go again. So God makes this decision. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. So God is not seeing a willing obedience, a loving obedience, Instead, there is a defiance of God's plan, a defiance of God's will. So God says, okay, I will make it impossible for you to, as a race, defy me. I'll confuse your language. So you won't understand one another. There's one word in that, in there, in in verse 8, that says, come. Who's he talking to? Well... Verse 7, come let us go down, is a statement, a phrase that would help us to see this as the Trinitarian God communicating with the three persons of the Trinity. It doesn't demand that. It could simply be the language of majesty, pure of majesty, but because of the rest of Scripture, which helps us to understand God as one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally, this is the Trinitarian God communicating within the Godhead. Let's go down, and we are now going to confuse their language so they cannot have interpersonal communication. They will be forced to disperse. Yeah, he does say, let us go down. That's right. So, yeah. mm-hmm. That's right. That's good. Thank you. Jim, question? Yeah, please. Again, this one, is it, um, they, they migrated east. Are they talking the sons of Noah, the three sons of all their families they migrate. When they say they, we're talking about that migrating specifically. Yes, um, that's a great question. It, 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 there is nothing in the text which would cause us to understand this in any other way than these are the descendants of the three sons of Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay. <laughs> in in a in a real sense, and this is not an original thought with me. In a real sense, chapter 11 chronologically precedes chapter 11, or chapter 10. Let me say that again. I'm not sure how I said it. In a very real sense, chapter 11 precedes chapter 10 chronologically. Chapter 10 explains how they disperse throughout the earth. Chapter 11 explains why they disperse. You follow me? So, again, there is nothing in the text here that helps us to reach any other conclusion than that these are the descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. How many? It doesn't tell us. Numbers? It doesn't tell us. But that seems to be the only reasonable way to look at this. So chapter 10 doesn't go into the power of faith? Not at all. All chapter 10 does is explain where they go. All chapter 10 does just explains where do the three sons and their descendants, where do they go? Chapter 11 explains 
why they went. They didn't go in obedience. And as they're, in a sense, God forced them to spread. Now, there's a very, very, very important piece of information for the rest of the scriptures that's provided in verse 9. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. Babel becomes a verb as well as a noun. We use that in English of babbling. You know, a little child babbling. Because it's, it's a wordplay. Babble as a term of human language is confusing language. You don't understand what people are saying. They're just babbling. You don't understand. What, they're not communicating anything to you. And when you hear a foreign language, if you don't know what it is, it sounds like babbling. You have no idea what that person is saying. So what God is doing here is this Babel, Babel, the Tower of Babel, becomes the foundation. Oh, yes, thank you. Thank you. Babel means confusion, but it also was the name of the tower they built, so we call it the Tower of Babel. But this becomes the origin of Babylon. As a matter of fact, now I wouldn't advise you to do that unless you're in the United States Army or the Marines. But if you were able to go to modern-day Iraq, and they would take you as a tourist. Again, this is not the best time in history to do that. There aren't, as far as I know, any tourist groups going to Iraq right now. One of my goals in my life was to lead a tour of all of the sites associated with Abraham. But I don't think that's going to happen. Unless quickly stability is reached in the Middle East, in my lifetime I'll never get it. I'll have to be in the kingdom of Jesus that I go there. But anyway, if you go there, <coughs> a good friend of mine did this. Uh, he got a special dispensation from Saddam Hussein when he was still in power as an historian to go and investigate but anyway, he told me that you can go and you see the site of the ancient city of Babylon. And they have a plaque on the ground about old Sarge that says this is the historic site for the Tower of Babylon. Whether that, I mean, I don't know how they ever figured that out. <laughs> it's just an historical marker. But what I'm saying to you, we know generally where it was. Generally speaking, we do. So this becomes, this becomes the origin, this tower, geographically, becomes the origin of Babylon, which you can see comes from Babel. And Babylon becomes both literally and figuratively a, an example of evil and rebellion against God. It will be used metaphorically in the Old Testament and the New Testament <coughs> as a symbol of rebellion against God. But it also is a literal city, <coughs> the city of Babylon, as well as the origin of a civilization, the Babylonian civilization. Did I just lose you, or are you with me? Nope. No, just historically, it's a very important piece of information because it helps us to understand where did this come from? It is the origin of the site of the Tower of Babel, which was an organized, defiant rebellion against God, and it is there where he confused human language and caused it, to, it meaning the human race, to spread until the earth. They didn't want to do it, but God forced them to do it. That's right. That's right. Now, <clears throat> that's, I, that's the country of Babylon rather than the city. Do you know that location there? Uh, it actually is both. Both. Okay. It, I'll just take one, please, passing on. It's both the or it's the, the uh, geographical location of approximately where the Tower of, of Babel was, but it also is the origin of the Babylonian city, the city of Babylon, and what becomes Babylonian civilization. 
They're all connected geographically. It's really quite fascinating to do that. So if things settle down uh, and I get a tour organized, will you go with me to? Sure. <laughs> I would love to, but I honestly doubt I'm going to be able to do that before I die. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. I want to make three concluding points, and one of them is the sheet you just received. I want to make three concluding points. <clears throat> we learned something here. Peoples and nations cannot defy God with impunity. Do you understand what I mean by that sentence? Nations and people cannot defy God with impunity. And human history is filled with hundreds, thousands, more likely, of both individuals, groups, clans, as well as nations who have believed that they alone are the exception to that rule. That they can defy God with impunity. And sometimes when you're in the middle of something, and you say, my goodness, he is defying God with impunity. God is, it doesn't look like he is ever going to fail. If you lived in 1938 in Hitler's Germany, that's the opinion you would have. There is nothing this man can do that doesn't succeed. It was just a series of success after success after success. But you wouldn't say that in May of 1945. Because his thousand-year Reich lasted for 12 years. And he absolutely destroyed the entire continent of Europe. If you lived at the time of Caesar Augustus, when Jesus was born, you would look and say, my goodness, there has never been an empire of this size, of this wealth, of this power. Nothing could ever bring this down. They called it the great colossus of history. You go to Rome today, you look at the ruins. It's an archaeological dig. It's not the center of a great civilization. If you go to the remnants of northern China, you would see, there aren't a lot of those, but you see the ruins associated with one of the greatest empires coming out of Asia, the Mongols under Genghis Khan. They conquered all the way to the Middle East. And everybody at that time said, who is ever going to bring this incredible power down? That's why they built the Great Wall, to protect themselves from the Mongols. You go to Mongolia today, you see the remnants of that civilization. There isn't much to see. I could go on and on and on. Any civilization, any group, any people, any nation that thinks they can defy God with impunity has done what everyone always concludes. The one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. The Tower of Babel and the subsequent material that flows out from us demonstrates once again, you cannot defy God with impunity. You cannot do that. Number two, <laughs> Babylon, what I wrote up here, which comes from the Tower of, of Babel, Babylon becomes the prototype. It's used both literally and figuratively in the Bible the prototype of defiance against God. It becomes that prototype, that model, that example. And even in when we studied the book of Revelation, remember chapter 17 and chapter 18? It spoke of political Babylon and commercial Babylon. Remember that? That became the symbol of evil and defiance against God. Number three. God is in the business of undoing Babel. And the best way to see that is to look at Pentecost. And that's what that little chart I gave you, <clears throat> this one that I just passed around. 
If you look at Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, confusing of tongues. What's Pentecost? The reversal of that. The gospel is understood by every single ethnic, racial, and language group that was in Jerusalem in A.D. 34, when Peter preached his famous sermon. Number two, God scattered the people in judgment to the four corners of the earth. Now God scatters people to spread the gospel and bring in the harvest from all corners of the earth. Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, before we went back to the Father, I'm giving you the strategic plan. The strategic plan is you start Jerusalem, and you go to Judea, then you go to Samaria, and then you go to the other ends of the earth. I am reversing what occurred in Babylon. Instead, I am bringing unity back to the human race, a unity that is centered around the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which offers eternal life to all humans. Language was used to promote, number three, a human agenda. Let us make a name for ourselves. Language is new yet now used as a sign to announce the mighty works of God. That is in, it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Language, human tongues, is now a sign of God's saving, redemptive plan. And all people of all languages, of all ethnic groups, are going to hear that message. And the gospel provides the basis for unity, whereas the Tower of Babel provided, of course, was the basis for disunity. God is undoing the Tower of Babel through his son. And Pentecost, that's why, that's why Pentecost, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, is such a central event in redemptive history. Because the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is over. He is about to, he has ascended back to the Father. The Spirit has come, which is what Acts 2 is all about, the sign of the new covenant, the sign of the new order. Now all humanity will hear this message. And the judgment of the Tower of Babel will be undone in the gospel. You almost get the sense that there's unity to the Bible, don't you? If you didn't conclude that, you're missing the point I'm trying to make. All right? Any questions? Do you really understand Genesis 11? That's good. I've got a question yes, about please. Pentecost. Um, everybody still had their own tongue, all the different races. I mean, there are a lot of, still a That's lot right. of different languages. Sure? Mm -hmm. But when Peter's spoke, for instance, uh, the gospel. Mm -hmm. Arabs understood it. Mm -hmm. uh, Chinese understood mm -hmm. it. It, was, it. came out in their own language, is that mm -hmm. what it boils down mm -hmm. to? That's right. That's the miracle of tongues in Acts chapter 2. Okay. This is good. Does your silence mean understanding that, Jim? Good. No, please, with your question. I mean, having worked in communications my entire life, um, I can, every, every corporation, every business, every nation tries to improve communications so that they can do, they can perform more effectively. It's like, this is almost like a curse that continues. <laughs> generation after generation. It's not just nations, it's organizations, it's countries. I think even in marriage sometimes communication is a challenge. And, you know, it, I, mean, I, I think it's got design limitations on preventing what we're hubris maybe or preventing us becoming everything that we maybe could be if we, if we didn't have these communication challenges. I don't know if you well, I well, that or not, but. well, I no, I think you're right. Uh, communication and sensible, easy to understand communication is what everybody strives for, because almost always a breakdown in an within an organization almost always starts. I am re-engaging with grace. And one of the major problems of the president that resigned a couple of months ago was he didn't communicate with anybody. Nobody knew what he was doing. Nobody knew what was going on. And, it, and when that 
is the ethos of an organization, then that raises all kinds of, what really is going on? Where is he taking it? What is he doing? And it, you just, it, and it may or may not be accurate and, and, and honest conclusions that you're reaching, but you just naturally start, I, what is going on? I'm seeing things that I don't understand, and the more you don't understand, the more almost like a conspiracy mentality develops, and there's a lack of trust, a lack of confidence. That's true in any organization. Um, another example of this, if I can, it, it doesn't fit, but it, it's a good illustration. One of the things Franklin Delano Roosevelt understood in 1933 when he became president was, I have got to restore confidence in this nation. And one of the things he did, and he had, I think he had like almost 400 of these fireside chats. He would sit, and I mean, he really wasn't in front of a fire, but that was the image, sitting and just talking to the American people. And the very first fire chat, side, chat that he had, he says, now listen, I've closed the banks, but in 14 days I'm going to reopen them. And I want you to understand what we're doing. We are reopening the banks because we're charging them, we're going to license them, and so I want you to take the money that's in your mattress, I want you to go down the street and put it back in the bank. Because I'm restoring trust in the banking system. If the banking system is not based on trust, it's not going to work. But I'm telling you, we're going to, you know, and he puts in the FDIC and all that stuff. So I want you to have trust in the banks, because I'm standing behind it. You put your money, it's going to be okay. And you know what happened? 40% of the American people reopened accounts. Because they heard your president say, a leader must communicate. If a leader doesn't communicate, he might as well close the doors, so to speak. God is saying to us, now listen, if you follow my ways and, and establish a relationship with me, I'm going to break down all the barriers. But if you try to do all this without me, it's not going to work. Now, that's really simplistic. But, Jim, that is exactly, that is exactly the point that God wants us to reach. We cannot do this on our own. Because when we say we're going to try to, do, or let's be even more direct, when we say, I'm going to do this on my own, you are saying, God, I don't care about you, I don't care about anything you stand for, anything you want to do, I'm going to do it my way, and God says, okay, I'll let you go. And can you think of any good examples of humans doing whatever they want to do in any kind of situation, it's turning out good. There is no example of that anywhere in humanism. Frank Sinatra? Well, he... Didn't, he he his, didn't turn out well. <laughs> no. <laughs> but anyway, so, and I'm, I'm not trying to make too much of this, I'm certainly not trying to make humorous comments about this, but what Jim said is absolutely correct. All of those limitations are the result is we want to make a name for ourselves apart from God. The basic ethos of the human race is a consistent declaration of independence from God. And God's a gentleman. God says, okay. Try it. Do it. And God says, but I'm here to rescue you. And the ultimate of that, of course, is the Lord Jesus. So that's why chapter 12 is such an important chapter. Because now God focuses on a redemptive plan. Three times he's seen disaster. And I'm, I'm not sure, I'm trying to put this into terms that I think are fairly accurate. God now, in effect, concludes, if God thinks that way, I'm not sure he does. Now I'm going to focus on an individual. And that individual is Abraham. And through Abraham, and that's what verse 2 and 3 is going to be about. Through Abraham, all peoples will be blessed. Paul picks up on that in Galatians chapter 3 and says that blessing is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is a Jew. And Abraham is the father of the Jewish people. Who become the channel for God's blessing. All right, now, uh, I thought there was something else I wanted to say, but at my old age, I'm forgetting what it was. But I guess there is. All right. You ready to crack in? I just want to start a little bit with the very tail end of chapter 11. 
and then transition to chapter four. Abraham is a descendant of Shem. He's from the Shem line. That's correct. <clears throat> now, verse 27 of chapter 11 begins with this. It's a very brief genealogy, but it's to anchor us now in what God is doing. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Now, right now, that's kind of, okay, all these names, but as you know, Particularly Abram and Lot become really important names. So it tells you, just anchoring you, Terah gives birth to three boys, Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran's son is Lot. So are Lot and Abraham or Abram related? Yes. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. It's not Sarah, Sarai. Sarai is an ancient Babylonian name for a goddess meaning princess. And the whore's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Isa. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now all of that seems like random information, but it's extremely important information. <coughs> Abram and Lot are related Abram has a wife, Sarai, and she doesn't have any children. She's barren. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, chapter 12 tells us why they moved. I, I wanted to make a map. Excuse me, bring a map with me. I ran out of time. <clears throat> I'll get that to you next time. I want to show you something. <clears throat> so if you let me draw this. <laughs> so if you let me draw this. <laughs> okay, here's the Mediterranean Sea. Okay? Here is the Euphrates and the Tigris River. Okay, or of the Chaldees is right here. It's very, very close to Shinar. The plain of Shinar, very, very close. This was that or of the Chaldees was a major, major city of the ancient world. We are about 2100 BC, the chapter 12. That's where we are probably. And this whole region, this whole region, this is Mesopotamian Valley, this is the Euphrates River, this is the Tigris River. This is what was called the Fertile Crescent. This is a very prosperous area, this is where civilization was really born. And this whole region was a series of individual city-states. Most importantly was Ur, wealthy. <laughs> Again, if you and I could go there on a plane, we land in Baghdad, we travel down to Ur. And the remnants and, and archaeological remains were formidable. We know exactly what it looked like. We know exactly how it was organized. It was a wealthy, incredibly prosperous city. It was the most important city-state of this whole region. God is, you just learned this, God will tell Abraham, I want you to gather. What we just read about explains to us that Abraham's father, Hira, they moved up to Haran. Haran is right here. Today, this would be right on the edge of Turkey and modern-day Syria. So they went up the Mesopotamian Valley. This is very easy to travel at this time. So they went up, and they're here. Okay, now, that's where they are. And here is, I'll call it, what Abraham would call it. This is the promised land. Who lives there? Canaanites. This is the land of the Canaanites. Abraham is the first Hebrew. Jews don't live there. He's in Canaan. These are the descendants of Canaan, the son of Ham. These are the ones whom uh, Noah cursed. But they live here. They're immoral. They're grossly immoral. They're pagan worship. Horrible. But up here is Abraham and his family. Here's the Canaan. The 
God had said, what explains why they moved the war. I mean, why would you leave this beautiful, prosperous, wealthy, comfortable, safe city and go near? Because God said, get out. I'm going to show you what I'm going to give you. And this is the land I'm going to give you. What is the word that is always used to define the character of Abraham? He was a man of faith. He heard what God said, he understood what God said, and he obeyed what God said. This is an amazing chapter. God says, get out, and he does. I mean, it's an amazing, it's absolutely amazing. That's why for the rest of the Bible, all the way through the book of Revelation, Abraham is held up as the paradigm, the model, the archetype of faith. <clears throat> okay? Jim. Yeah. I have heard, and I don't know where to go look for it, but I have heard that, that Abraham was worshiping a moon god or something. He was. So how could he be a man of faith and God's chosen person when he was involved in that kind of idol worship? Well, in Joshua, I think Joshua chapter 24, it tells us that Abraham did worship the pagan gods of southern Mesopotamia, including the moon god. Uh, his wife, Sarai, is named after a Babylonian or southern Mesopotamian goddess. So he was very much a pagan. But Jim, the exact way you're asking that question, the Bible doesn't help us to understand why. But in some way, in some way, when God talks to him audibly or however, you understand what's going on there, he responds in faith. He believes that this is the one true God <clears throat> to which he owes obedience, and he, he obeyed. How he understood it, how he found out. Now listen, there's something else that's really important here. Sometimes when you study the Bible, particularly in these narratives, like we're just getting started with, with chapter 12, you get the idea that Abram is the only person in the entire universe that believes in the true God. That's not true. A contemporary of Abraham is Job. Another contemporary of Abraham is Melchizedek. We'll read about him in chapter 14. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, early Jerusalem. And Abram pays tithes to him. And I'm saying all that because there were many, 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 many people in 2100 BC that believed in the one true God. It's just the Bible is only identifying for us three of them. I mean, there are others, three prominent ones, Abram, Job, and Melchizedek. So we must infer that there were others but it is Abraham who's singled out because through him, God is going to bless the entire human race. So how, are they, how did they know about God? How did they know? I mean, they're offering sacrifices to God. The Bible's just silent on how all of that revelation was communicated. So would it be fair to say that in the same way that God chose Abraham, he saw potential or saw the future in him, it's the same way he works in the lives of people around his day. He pulls us out of yes, from certain circumstances. Remember the railroad tracks. On the railroad track of divine sovereignty, absolutely that's what God did. But Abram also, on the other side of the railroad track, responsible freedom, Abram chooses to obey. He's not a robot, but you're correct. All right. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 12. We now crack into what is for the rest of the book of Genesis. goes all the way through chapter 50. It's a series of narrative stories about these great patriarchs. In your notes, the period of the patriarchs, God's redemptive plan begins with a single individual. It's Abram. Now, verse 1, the Lord said, now please note, and I, I, I've done this before, but I want you to really stress the name for God there. It's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Yahweh. This is that title for God, Yahweh, the self-sufficient, self-existent, great I am. 
That's all embedded in that title, Yahweh. So Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, please note that God is asking Abram to make a break to sever all ties with, with everything that defined his identity, his country, or of the Chaldees, his kindred, his family, his entire extended family, and his father's house. Everyone that was associated with, and as Jim said a couple of minutes ago, this pagan, polytheistic, animistic worship. I want you to cut ties with everything that defines your identity, Abram. To the land that I will show you. So from verse 1, what do we learn? Abram did not know where God was taking him. Does God define the geography of this land? No. The location of this land? No. The dimensions of this land? No. All God says is, if you summarize, get out and I'll show you where I'm going to take you. And then verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. Make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So, I want you to look over at verse 7, too. To your offspring, I will give this land. So God, in effect, this is what is sometimes called, sometimes, it is called the Abrahamic covenant. Now keep that in your mind, keep that in, tucked away in your mental half, because we're going to keep coming back. This is going to be repeated, this promise, over and over and over and over and over again through the rest of the Bible. It's the first time it's stated, it's going to be repeated endless times throughout the scripture. He makes him a threefold promise. A threefold promise is I'm going to make from you a great nation. I'm going to make you a blessing, a channel of blessing for everyone, and I'm going to give you land. So I'm going to make a nation. He's going to tell you later on, in the next couple of chapters, a nation that's going to be numerous as the stars in the skies, the sand in the seashore. Abraham, in you, you're going to be a blessing in you. All peoples of planet Earth will be blessed. And I'm going to give you land. That is a threefold covenant promise. As you'll see in Genesis, we'll get to that in a couple of months probably, but you'll see that God then is going to make a, he's going to seal this covenant. He's going to cut this covenant. And it will be a unilateral, unconditional covenant. It's not dependent on anything Abraham does. It's dependent only on God's promise. Another way of saying this, God made Abraham a promise. It's got three parts to it. If you leave Lord of the Chaldees, this is what I promise you. I want you to notice something else in verse 3 before we, we end here. <clears throat> I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So there is a there is a corollary to this blessing promise. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who do not, I will curse. Hey, that's, hmm? this is, I think I know the answer to this question, but do you think that's still true today as it pertains to Israel? Is there evidence that it's true today? I'm trying to stay away from a bunny trail, but um, it, Joel, I don't see any reason 
why we should discount this as a universal statement of how God deals with the Jewish people. And it's a promise to Abraham and his descendants. A nation I will bless, and those who bless you I will bless. Those who dishonor or curse you I will curse. <laughs> <coughs> I don't think so. I I don't I don't think so. It's just it's one of the really it's it's in my book, most uh, recent one I published, Covenant People. I deal a little bit with that. It's really a fascinating thing to study. Where the Jewish people who are the chosen people of God. This, they will be the channel through which he will bring blessing. Messiah comes from the throne. His promises to them are not completely fulfilled yet. That seems to be all wrapped around the second coming of Christ and all that. But anyway, it's really interesting to study that. Let's, let me choose just one example. In 1492, without question, the superpower of the world at that time was Spain. They were about to embark on financing the great voyage of discovery. And they would, under Columbus at first, you know, you'd make four voyages, and they would absolutely, to overflowing, fill their treasury with the gold and silver coming out of the civilization of Central and South America. And Spain would become the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world at that time. But in 1492, they also did something else. They threw all the Jews out of the country. This was the great center of diaspora Judaism. When Roman Empire destroyed uh, uh, Jewish civilization in AD 70, destroyed and burned Jerusalem, they were forced and spread throughout the world. This becomes the center of what's called the Sephardic Jews. Sephardic is Hebrew for Spanish. It was the great, great cultural center of Judaism, the most thriving, prosperous, intellectually sophisticated center of Jewish civilization was in Spain. But under Ferdinand and Isabella and, and Cardinal Imanez, they forced the Jews to leave. What happened to Spain? You think of Spain today as a great, powerful country? As a matter of fact, 100 years later, in 1588, they challenged England in what's called the Great Spanish Armada. The most humiliating, devastating defeat any nation experienced up to that point in history, which begins with the decline of Spain and the rise of England. England threw the Jews out under Edward I, let them back in about 100 years later. It's just interesting. That is a way to analyze history. The great, the great pogroms against Jews occurred in Russia. And under the Tsars, under, it was horrible. What they, if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, that's what that's about. The great pogroms under the Tsars of Russia. The Romanov dynasty hated the Jews, called them Christ killers, wiped them out, threw them into ghettos. Do you associate Russia with, I mean, this experienced tremendous devastation. And it's really interesting what Vladimir Putin is trying to do right now. He's trying to restore the greatness of Russia. He's not having a lot of success, but the greatness of Russia. And one of the things he wants to do is establish a significant beachhead in the Middle East. He's trying to restore really positive relations with Jerusalem, with Israel. There's so many Russian Orthodox churches there. And he succeeded in doing something no Tsar ever succeeded in doing. A naval base in the Middle East. Where's that naval base? In Syria. No, no Russian Tsar ever was able to get that. Putin has gotten it. There's a naval base and two air bases in modern Syria. That's just fascinating. That's just a fascinating thing to study. But I've got to quit because that God on the wall tells us it's time to quit. So tomorrow we, or uh, next Wednesday, we will start digging into chapter 12 and 13 possibly even a little bit into 14. So if you want an assignment, read 12 and 13. None of you takes that seriously, but in case you do, <laughs> okay? So we're, we're, we're going to now, we'll pick up some speed here because these narratives 
are not difficult as long as you keep the point of what's going on. What, what is God doing through Abram? Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this. Well, it's a beautiful day that you created. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you for the privilege of studying. And we are grateful for the importance of this book of Genesis to what you're doing, why the problems of the human race are such as they are, and what your solution is. That solution starts with Abram. <coughs> because through Abram will come the Messiah, ultimately. And the book of Genesis, particularly now 12 through 50, helps us to understand how that gets narrower and narrower and narrower. There we see what your redemptive plan really is. It's centered on the descendant of Judah, one of the children of Jacob, who will be that kingly line that will produce David and ultimately Messiah Jesus. Your plan, so to speak, of redeeming the human race begins with Abram. And we, we look forward to this continued study together. Bust these men in the busy lives and all the responsibilities they have. Help them to find their hope and their purpose in the Lord Jesus. And all they do and all they say, might they represent you well. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'll see you next week.